And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Can't wait to the Old West in the most haunted city in the country. Well, it's August the 17th, 229th day of the year. 136 days remain to the year's over with. And holidays and observances. National Black Cat Appreciation Day. Baby Boomers Recognition Day. Gabon Independence Day. Indonesia Independence Day. National Able Day. National I Love My Feet Day. National Maryland Day. National Massachusetts Day. National Nonprofit Day. National Thrift Shop Day. National Workers' Comp Adjuster Day. And Slovenians in Prekmajer Incorporated into the Mother Nation Day. Well, in 310 A.D., Pope Eusebius dies, possibly from a hunger strike, after being banished by the Emperor Maxentius to Sicily. If I went to Sicily, I'd probably go on a hunger strike as well. 682, Pope Leo II begins his pontificate. 986, Byzantine-Bulgarian Wars, Battle of the Gates of Trajan. The Bulgarians, under the Kometapuli Samuel and Aaron, defeat the Byzantine forces at the Gate of Trajan, with Byzantine Emperor Basil II barely escaping. 1186, Georgian Bird Pact. Odokar IV, Duke of Styria, and Leopold V, Duke of Austria, sign a heritage agreement with Odokar, gives his duchy to Leopold and to his son Frederick under the stipulation Austrian Styria would remain undivided. 1386, Karl Topia, the ruler of Princedom of Albania, forges an alliance with the Republic of Venice, committing to participate in all wars of the Republic and Receiving coastal protection against the Ottomans in return. 1424, 100 years war. Battle of Verneuil. English force under John, Duke of Bedford, defeats a larger French army under Jean II, Duke of Alencon, John Stuart, and Earl Archibald of uh, Douglas. 1486, Conrad Bitz, Bishop of Turku, makes the date of the, his preface to the sale. Abonis, the oldest known book of Finland. Run out and get with a copy today. Uh, 1498, Caesar Borgia, son of Pope Alexander VI, becomes the first person in history to resign the cardinate. Later that same day, King Louis XII of France names him Duke of Valentinius. 1549, Duke of the, the Battle of uh, Samford Courtney. Prayer Book Rebellion is quashed in England. For those who are not familiar with the Prayer Book Rebellion, there's a revolt in Cornwall and Devon in 1549. In that year, the first Book of Common Prayer presented in theology of the English Reformation was introduced. Change is wildly unpopular, particularly in areas where firm Catholic religious uh, loyalty still existed, such as Lancashire. Along with poor economic conditions, the enforcement of the English language led to an explosion of anger in Cromwell and, and Cornwall and uh, Devon. 
initiating an uprising in response. Edward Seymour, first Duke of Somerset, and sent John Russell to suppress the revolt. Uh, with the rebels being defeated and its leaders executed two months after the beginning of hostilities, that would certainly, um, executing the leaders would certainly put a damper on things. But of all the things to fight about, religion will be the last one on my list. 1560, Catholic Church is overthrown and Protestantism is established as the national religion of Scotland. 1585, Eighty Years' War, Siege of Antwerp. Antwerp is captured by Spanish forces by Alexander Farnese, Duke of Parma, who orders the Protestants to leave the city. And as a result, over half of the 100,000 inhabitants flee to the northern provinces. 1585, the first group of colonists sent by Sir Walter Raleigh under the charge of Ralph Lane lands in the New World to create uh, Roanoke Colony on Roanoke Island off the coast of present-day North Carolina. Then they vanish. 1597, Island's Voyage. Robert Devereux, second Earl of Essex, and Sir Walter Raleigh set sail on an expedition to the Azores. 18, uh, six, little more, one more time, 1668. Magnitude 8.0, North Anatolia earthquake causes 8,000 deaths in Northern Anatolia and the Ottoman Empire. 1717, Austro-Turkish War of 1716. Month-long siege of Belgrade ends with Prince Eugene of Savoy's Austrian troops capturing the city from the Ottoman Empire. 1723, Ion Gurgiu Patashi becomes Bishop of Fagoras, festively installed in his position at the St. Nicholas Cathedral in Fagoras, after being formally confirmed earlier by Pope Clement XI. 1740, Pope Benedict XIV, uh, previously known as Prospero Lambertini, succeeds Clement XII as the 247th Pope. 1784, classical composer Luigi Bacerini gets a pay raise of 12,000 reals from his employer, the Infanta Luis, Count of uh, Chinchon. 1798, the Vietnamese Catholics report a Marian apparition in Quang Tri, an event that is called Our Lady of the Love Hang. 1807, Robert Fulton's North River Steamboat leaves New York City for Albany, New York on the Hudson River, inaugurating the first commercial steamboat service in the world. 1808, the Finnish War, the Battle of Alavis is fought. 1827, Dutch King William I and Pope Leo XII sign a concord. 1836, British Parliament accepts resignation of registration of births, marriages, and deaths. Before that, who cared? 1862, American Indian Wars. The Dakota War of 1862 begins in Minnesota as Dakota warriors attack white settlements along the Minnesota River. 1862, American Civil War. Major General Jeb Stewart's assigned command of all cavalry of the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia. 1863, American Civil War. In Charleston, South Carolina, Union batteries and ships bombard Confederate Hill Fort Sumter. 1864, American Civil War, Battle of Gainesville. Confederate forces defeat Union troops near Gainesville, Florida. 1866, the Grand Duchy of Baden announces its withdrawal from the German Confederation and signs a treaty of peace and alliance with Prussia. 
1876, Richard Wagner's Gunter Dämmerung, the last opera in his ring cycle, premieres at the Bayreuth Festspielhaus. 1883, first public performance of the Dominican Republic's national anthem, Hymno Nacional, took place on this date. 1896, Bridget Driscoll becomes the first recorded case of a pedestrian killed in a collision with a motor car in the United Kingdom. Now that's a first you didn't want to have. But somebody had to be the first. 1914, World War I. Battle of Stalin-Ponin, German army of General Hermann von Francois defeats the Russian force commanded by Paul von Rennenkampf near modern-day Nesterov, uh, Russia. 1915, Jewish-American Leo Frank is lynched to Marietta, Georgia after his death sentence is commuted by Governor John Slayton. In fact, he was broken out of prison to hang him. It was a lynching. And he wasn't guilty of what they accused him of doing. I've studied that case. 1915, a Category 4 hurricane hits Galveston, Texas with winds at 135 miles per hour. In this date, 1916, World War I, Romania signs a secret treaty with the Entente powers. According to the treaty, Romania agrees to join the war on the Allied side. But, of course, they didn't want that to get out. 1918, Bolshevik Revolutionary Leader Mosai Ritsky is assassinated. 1942, World War II, U.S. Marines laid the Japanese-held Pacific Island of Makin. 1943, World War II, the U.S. 8th Air Force suffers a loss of 60 bombers on the swanford regensburg mission. 1943, World War II, the U.S. 7th Army under General Patton arrives in Messina, Italy, following several hours later by the British 8th Army under Field Marshal Montgomery, which completed the Allied conquest of Sicily. Also in 1943, World War II, first Quebec conference to Winston Churchill, Franklin Roosevelt, and William Lyon Mackenzie King begins. 1943, World War II, the Royal Air Force begins Operation Hydra. First air raid of the Operation Crossbow strategic bombing campaign against Germany's V-weapon program. 1945, Sukarno and Mohammed Hatta proclaim the independence of Indonesia, igniting the Indonesian National Revolution against the Dutch Empire. 1945, the novella Animal Farm by George Orwell is published. Also in 45, evacuation of Manchuko at... Uh, Kalitzu, by the Sino-Korean border, Puyi, then the Kangda Emperor of Manchukuo, formally renounces the imperial throne, dissolves the state, and cedes its territory to the Republic of China. He had been the last emperor of China. The Japanese put him in as a puppet emperor of Manchukuo, and uh, he decided to get out while the getting was good. For those that are interested in Puyi, he was the 11th and final monarch of the Qing Dynasty and ruler of the puppet state of Manchukuo under the Empire of Japan. Became emperor at age 2 in 1908, but forced to abdicate at the age of 6 in 1912 during the Qinghai Revolution. His era name is King Emperor Kwantung.
means proclamation of unity, was briefly restored to the throne as the emperor by the loyalist General Zhang Zhu from July 1st to July 12th, 1917. First wed to Empress Wenrong in 1922 in an arranged marriage. 1924, he was expelled from the Bidden City and found refuge in Tianjin, where he began to court both the warlords fighting for control over China and the Japanese had long desired control of China. 1932, after the Japanese invasion of Manchuria, the puppet state of Manchukuo was established by Japan and he was chosen to become the first chief executive of the new state. 1934, he became emperor of Manchukuo and uh, reigned over his new empire to the end of the, the war in 45. Now the third stint as emperor saw him as a puppet of Japan. He signed most of the edicts the Japanese gave him. And during this period, he largely resigned in the uh, Salt Tax Palace, where he regularly ordered his servants beaten. His first wife's opium addiction consumed her during these years, and they were generally not that close. He took on numerous concubines, as well as male lovers. With the fall of Japan, he fled the capital, eventually captured by the Soviets, extradited to the People's Republic of China in 1950. After his capture, he never saw his first wife again. She died of starvation in a Chinese prison in 1946. He was a defendant in the Tokyo trials and lived in prison and re-educated as a war criminal for over 10 years. After his release in 1959, he wrote his memoirs and became a titular member of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference and the National People's Congress of the People's Republic of China. His time in prison, of course, changed him, and he expressed deep regret for his actions while he was emperor. He died in 67, and was ultimately buried near the Western King tombs in a commercial cemetery. I mean, I wish somebody had chosen me as emperor when I was two years old. In 1947, the Radcliffe Line. The border between the dominions of India and Pakistan is revealed. 1949, a 6.7 Karaliova earthquake shakes eastern Turkey with a maximum Michele intensity of 10, which is considered extreme, leaving 320 to 450 people dead. 1949, Matsukawa derailment. Unknown saboteurs cause a passenger train to derail and overturn in Fukushima Prefecture. In Japan, killing three crew members and igniting the political firestorm between the Japanese Communist Party and the government of occupied Japan that eventually led to the Japanese uh, Red Purge. 1953 saw the first meeting of Narcotics Anonymous take place in Southern California. 1955, Hurricane Diane made landfall near Wilmington, North Carolina, went on to cause major floods and kill more than 184 people. 1958, Pioneer Zero, America's first attempt at lunar orbits, launched uh, using the first uh, Thor-able rocket and fails. No one was one of the first attempted launches beyond Earth's orbit by any country. Missed it by that much. 1959, Quake Lake is formed by a magnitude 7.2 1959 Hebgen Lake earthquake near Hebgen Lake in Montana. 1960, Aero Flight 36 crashes in Soviet Ukraine killed 34 people. 1962, Peter Fechter is shot and bleeds to death while trying to cross the New Berlin Wall. 
1969, Category 5, Hurricane Camille hits the U.S. Gulf Coast, killing 256 and causing $1.42 billion in damages. Nineteen seventy Soviet Union Venera program. Venera seven is launched on this day to become the first spacecraft to successfully transmit data from the surface of another planet, that planet being Venus. Nineteen seventy six, a magnitude seven point nine earthquake hits off the coast of Mindanao, Philippines, triggering a destructive tsunami, killing between uh, five thousand and eight thousand people and leaving more than ninety thousand people homeless. Nineteen seventy seven, the Soviet uh, icebreaker. Rakita becomes the first surface ship to reach the North Pole. 1978, Double Eagle Two becomes the first balloon to cross the Atlantic Ocean when it lands in Miseré, France, near Paris, 137 hours after leaving Presque Isle in Maine. 1985 and 1985-86, Armel Strike begins in Austin, Minnesota. 1988, President of Pakistan Muhammad Zia Haq and U.S. Ambassador Arnold Raphael are murdered in a plane crash. 1991, Strathfield Massacre in Sydney, New South Wales, Australia. Taxi driver Wade Frankham shoots seven people and injures six others before he turned a gun on himself. 1998, the Lewinsky scandal. President Bill Clinton, my third cousin, admits in taped testimony he had an improper physical relationship with White House intern Monica Lewinsky later that same day admits to the nation that he misled people about the relationship. 1999, a 7.6 Izmit earthquake shakes northwestern Turkey with a maximum locality intensity of 9, which is considered violent, leaving 17,118 to 17,127 people dead and 43,953 to 50,000 people injured. 2004, the National Assembly of Serbia unanimously adopts the new state symbols for Serbia. Bosnia Pravda becomes the new anthem, and the coat of arms is adopted for the whole country. 2005, the first forced evacuation of settlers as part of Israeli disengagement from Gaza starts on this date. 2005, over 500 bombs are set off by terrorists at 300 locations in 63 out of 64 districts of Bangladesh. 2008, American swimmer Michael Phelps becomes the first person to win eight gold medals in one Olympic game. But I think that uh, record has now been broken. 2009, an accident at the Sayano Shushinkaya Dam in Kakasia, Russia, kills 75 and shuts down the hydroelectric power station, leading to widespread power failure in the local area. 2015, a bomb explodes near the Euroland Shrine in Bangkok, Thailand kills at least 19 and injures 123 others. 2017, Barcelona attacks. Van is driven into pedestrians in La Rambia, killing 14 and injuring at least 100. Um, 2019, a bomb explodes at a wedding in Kabul, kills 63 and leaves 182 injured. That's a bad way to start your marriage with a bomb going off. That's worse than a mother-in-law moving in. Well, we've been talking about unsolved murders. And I did a book some time back called Unfinished Business. And that's what it's about, unsolved murders. 
seems as a result of today's crime-solving television shows, most people believe, uh, through the use of science, every crime can be solved in 60 minutes, taking time out for commercials, of course. But that's not true. It's never been true. Though through the use of modern DNA techniques, more and more cases are being solved than ever before. It's become the rule for most police departments that cold cases are being pulled out of dusty filing cabinets and the evidence being given a new review using current scientific uh, processes. But my question is, what about those really old cases? Say, a hundred years old or more. Can modern techniques work there? Uh, one crime. Crime scene investigators are, for the most part, scientists and specialists in their own right, each trained to thoroughly investigate certain pieces or certain types of evidence. But some aspect of criminal investigation uh, at a standard today wasn't even thought about a hundred years ago. Uh, crime scene investigation today consists of uh, lifting fingerprints and looking at the DNA. And But this is a result of uh, relatively recent scientific discoveries. As an example, Chinese have been using fingerprints as a means of identification, authentication, and verification since before the 3rd century B.C. But the first use of a fingerprint on a contract in the British Empire was in July of 1858 in Jangipur in India when the local chief magistrate had to ask a native businessman to put his fingerprints on a contract. It wasn't until July of 1877 an American by the name of Thomas Taylor proposed that finger and palm prints left on uh, an object might be used to solve crimes. First known usage of fingerprints in the U.S. was in 1882 when Gilbert Thompson of the U.S. Geological Survey in New Mexico used his own thumbprint on a document to help prevent forgery. Then, of course, there was Alphonse Brutillion, a clerk in the prefecture of police in Paris, who in 1882 developed a system of classification known as anthropom um, anthropometry using measurements of various body parts. I can't talk either. Widespread uses of his system began in 1888. And he also instituted the use of fingerprints, but only as an assist to this, his own system, uh, known as the Bertillion Method. First use of fingerprints in this country began in 1903 in New York City when two individuals in Leavenworth Penitentiary turned out to have the same identical Bertillion measurements. Fingerprints were found to be more useful in identifying who was who in this particular case. So it's fairly clear that it wasn't until after the beginning of the 20th century that uh, fingerprints were even looked at in a, a major method of identification. So how are investigators going to track down a faceless killer without the... Um, those basic tools that we take for granted today. Well, DNA profiling has become the subject of hundreds of television crime dramas, but in spite of this exposure, it hadn't been allowed in forensic investigation for all that long. DNA profiling was first permanently used to determine paternity. It was found that it had other uses in the investigative field. First used in the court system in 1986 when police in England asked a 
molecular biologist by the name of Alec Jeffries had been investigating the use of DNA for forensic investigation to use DNA to verify the confession of a 17-year-old boy committing two rape murders in the England Midlands. The test proved that the teenager was, in fact, not telling the truth, and the actual attacker was eventually caught, also using DNA testing. Well, we're aware of a few of the unique murder cases from the 1800s and early 1900s, such as Jack the Ripper, who terrorized London during the 80 days of the Victorian era. But few are aware of some of the unbelievably monstrous cases that happened in this country during the waning years of the 19th century and early years of the 20th century. So we're going to look at some of the major unsolved cases of 100 years ago and see if it's possible to use today's scientific methods to solve these cases. In other words, let's see if we can uh, bring an end to some unfinished business. Well, the first case we're going to look at, I call it Jack the Axe Man. Now, murders are difficult to solve when there's clear motive and a known suspect. Usually, police look for means, motive, and opportunity. If one of the three is missing, you probably don't have the right um, suspect. Especially when there's absolutely no motive and there's not even an inkling of an idea as to whom the suspect might be. In those particular instances, solving the murder is um, almost impossible. And everybody's heard of the infamous Jack the Ripper, also called the Whitechapel Murderer, as well as Leather Apron. That names, those names are given to an unidentified serial killer who terrorized the Whitechapel section of London in 1888. Now, the Whitechapel area of London in the 1880s was somewhat a world unto itself overcrowded, terrible work conditions and living conditions. Even the very atmosphere of the area aided the, um, the actions of this mysterious killer who slipped through the foggy, rainy London nights prowling through the winding, dingy streets to ambush his next victim. Though most writers claim that Jack the Ripper killed only the five best-known prostitutes linked to him by a popular legend were actually 11 or more murders actually linked to him by the police. The uh, for future reference, the local police refer to these killings as the Whitechapel murders. And there's evidence that he may have been has killed several more than reported before vanishing into the mists and fog of London. And all these associated murders demonstrated the same modus operandi that became known as the Ripper's handiwork. Throats slashed, abdominal and genital areas mutilated, removal of internal organs and facial mutilations. And just as today, in the mid-1800s, London was receiving a major influx of immigrants from numerous other countries that swelled the population of London beyond belief. And whether it was immigrants from Ireland or Jewish refugees escaping the pogroms of Tsarist Russia, these newcomers, mostly poor, some with just the clothes on their backs, swelled the population of the poor neighborhoods almost at a bursting point. And it was from these struggling immigrants that poured out into the ever-growing slums that Jack the Ripper chose his victim, committing increasingly gruesome murders until they inexplicably vanished into history. Or did he actually vanish? Well, according across the ocean, New Orleans, Louisiana, the early 1900s, was almost a world unto itself. And though it was a major city in the southern United States, it is and always has been unlike any other city in the country, primarily due to its French Cajun roots. 
French Quarter has long been known as an area where dreams are born and one can lose oneself and the sounds of music can be heard in a few other places. There's also an aura of mystery and delicious danger that um, overlies the city's practitioners of voodoo and other black arts work side by side with those who strive to modernize this steadily growing city. Orleans was the home of the mysterious and lovely Marie Laveau, called the Voodoo Queen. She held the entire city in the palm of one delicate hand for several decades. And as a major coastal city, New Orleans also boasts an atmosphere unlike few other locations. The night can range from hot and sultry to cool and moist as your skin is caressed by cool ocean breezes. If you're lucky enough to live close to the shore or hot and muggy in the winding streets of the city. In short, it's literally unlike any place else and may well have been part of the reason that New Orleans had its own mystery killer who, interestingly enough, chose its victims from among the more prosperous Italian immigrants. And was it simply a coincidence that Jack the X-Man, as many came to call this mysterious killer, chose his victims from among those who came to this country seeking a better life? Most believe he only killed Italian grocers, but in actuality, he killed individuals from other professions as well. And even more interesting was the reaction of neighbors who wanted to get involved in these tragedies. These murders gave neighbors and victims a chance to settle scores, real or imagined, with those unfortunate enough to get caught up in a tragedy as well. And of course, there were the media fanning the flames, accusing, trying, and convicting those suspected of being the culprits in the newspapers without any more evidence than the police had. Like the killings attributed to Jack the Ripper, the first killing by Jack the X-Man raised the eyebrows of the victim's social set, but it didn't provoke the fear that the additional murders would cause later on. It should be considered that the backdrop of these murders was... Uh, there was also a world war raging in Europe in 1918. A lot of American soldiers were there. As a result, most of the attention of not only the city, but the world was focused on uh, the fields of Flanders, so to speak. In the beginning, more attention was paid to the war news and the news closer to home. Well, what would become a reign of terror in this city, caught between two worlds, as it were, began on the night of May 23, 1918. Early hours of May 24th, Joseph and Catherine Maggio, an Italian immigrant couple who ran a small grocery, discovered in their beds. Dead. They'd been assaulted with their own axe, which had been taken from their own backyard. Throats had been slashed with a razor. In fact, Mrs. Maggio's throat had been slashed so deeply her head was almost severed from her body. Kevin left the razor lying on the floor in a pool of blood. And subsequent investigation revealed that nothing appeared to have been stolen. Beneath Mr. Maggio's pillow was over a hundred dollars. Mm. A hiccuped in cash taken from his store. Now, in 1918, $100 was quite a lot of money. The killer, who also ignored Mrs. Maggio's jewelry lying on a dresser, and apparently entered and left the combination home store by chiseling out a panel from the rear door. In another similarity to Ripper case, a handwritten message was found on the sidewalk near the Maggio home. And it said, Miss Maggio is going to sit up tonight just like Miss Tony. Never discovered who wrote that message. 
Well, under enthusiasm, they quickly closed the case, and based on the unsupported word of a neighbor that he had seen Andrew Maggio, Joseph's brother, come home between 2 and 3 in the morning. Both Andrew and Jake, uh, Maggio's brothers, also lived in the combination home business were arrested on literally no evidence other than living in the same house. Both were shortly released. Now, that's the type of law enforcement that's almost common. In El Paso. Long-time members of the police force and some reporters, to be sure, remembered in 1911 three other Indian Italian grocers had been murdered by an axe-wielding killer. In two of those cases, their wives had also been murdered. The uh, victims were identified as uh, Crudy, Rossetti, and Tony Chiambra. There were those who thought that uh, Miss Tony message uh, found on the sidewalk referred to Tony Chiambra's wife. Those cases were never solved as well. It should be noted there were a number of problems with the investigation of this case. The detective placed in charge of the Maggio case was killed by a burglary suspect. So a new lead detective had to be assigned who was unable to define numerous leads mentioned to the press by his predecessor. And such were the barrage of lurid headlines from the battlefields of France that filled the front pages of local papers that by the time of the second attack, most people had forgotten about the first attack. In June of 1918, a Polish immigrant by the name of Louis Bessemer and his paramour, Harriet Lowe, were attacked in their beds with an axe taken from their yard by a mysterious killer. This is in the first killing, a panel had been removed from the door to allow the killer to enter, and once again, nothing was stolen within the house of the business. Victims had their throats slashed and their faces were mutilated, though whether intentionally or as a result of the attack really wasn't sure, uh, known. But in this particular case, both the victims survived, though Harriet Lowe died of her injuries later. You know, it's interesting to note that um, a couple of other facts came to light that literally shocked the local community down to their toenails. And it was hard to know if the neighbors were more shocked to find uh, that the couple were living in sin or that there had been a second attack. They weren't married. Now, Lowe's behavior was odd, to say the least. Though she professed not to know the identity of her assailant, she first accused Bessemer of trying to kill her and then said he was a German spy. District attorney, who, of course, was under intense pressure to solve the axe murders, and based on what he called a um, deathbed statement by Lowe, ignoring the similarities between this attack and the Maggio uh, murders, charged Besson with the murder of Lowe when she died two months after the attack. And while he didn't accuse Bessemer of the earlier murder of the Maggios, he certainly did nothing to discourage such talk among the citizens of New Orleans. Unfortunately for the DA, charging Besson with the murder of Lowe didn't stop the real Jack the Axe Man. Though the DA brought Bessemer to trial for the murder of Lowe, Bessemer was acquitted, leaving the DA with egg on his face. There had been a rumor that the Mafia was involved in the Maggio killing since they were Italian, but since Bessemer was an Italian, that line of inquiry fell short. And on its face, 
the Bessemer case did seem tied to DiMaggio murders. The first witness, John Zaka, arrived at the Bessemer grocery in the early hours of June 28, 1918, to, to deliver bed and, bread and cakes. Found a panel the door had been carved out, so he pounded on the door until a groggy Lewis Bessemer, blood streaming from a bloody head wound, answered the door. Zaka pushed past him and discovered Lowe in her bed with a very bloody wound to her own head. And while in the hospital, Harriet Lowe, who couldn't seem to shut up save her life, made the statements about Bessemer being a German spy, which brought in the feds. Of course, he was later cleared of being a spy. She'd be understood the only evidence ever submitted Bessemer was guilty of anything more than those completely were those completely unsupported statements. Harriet Lowe also began to talk about the attacks. And this is the woman that said that she couldn't remember anything, but she said that Bessemer was sitting at a desk working on his accounts while she went to the kitchen. And according to her stories, while she was checking on some prunes she'd been cooking as she blacked out. She believed she'd been attacked in the kitchen. Her body was moved as she remembered nothing of the attack or of going to bed. Yet she said, in spite of not remembering going to bed, she remembered waking up in the bed and seeing a man standing over her, making some kind of motions with his hands, and then she saw the axe. According to her, at this point, when she screamed, gave a brief description of the man she saw standing over her bed. She said he was tall and heavyset, and she was absolutely positive he was a white man with dark brown hair that almost stood on end. He was wearing a white shirt, open at the neck. Next thing she remembers was waking up in the gallery with her face in a pool of blood. Of course, in the next interview, her story changed in several major respects. In spite of the continually changing narrative, the police dutifully followed up on every allegation she made, to include the one that it was Bessemer that tried to kill her. Now, how much of these changes were due to the urging of the police, and how much were based on her uh, inability to think clearly after the head injuries was never really examined. And based entirely on her statements, with some relief, police officials decided Bessemer case was not an Axeman attack, but that Bessemer himself had inflicted his own wounds in order to cover up trying to kill Harriet Lowe. Now, you have to remember this was before the age of forensic science when a policeman's gut feelings solved cases, whether they were correct or not. And those whether they were correct or not, really wasn't a concern. Closing cases, especially high-profile cases, were the order of the day, especially in regard to the Axeman. Unfortunately for the police, the jury didn't agree with them. Now, there were a few other interesting tidbits that came to light about the Bessemer case. Harriet Lowe became the center of a media circus as she continually made scandalous and even often uh, false statements relating to both the attacks and the character of Louis Bessemer. The Times Picayune sensationalized Lowe and her outspoken nature upon discovering she was not actually the wife of Bessemer, but his mistress. A charity hospital source discovered the scandal when Bessemer asked to be directed to the room of Ms. Harriet Lowe and inevitably denied access as no woman by that name was a patient. And then, to make things worse, Bessemer's legal wife arrived from Cincinnati in the days following the discovery, which further inflamed the, the ongoing media circus. Well, Lowe further gained media attention as she repeatedly made statements 
yet voiced her dislike of the New Orleans chief of police as well as her reluctance to comply with police questioning. After the truth of her marital status was revealed publicly, she told reporters from the Times Picayune she no longer aid the police in their investigation as she suspected it had been Chief Mooney who first informed the press of the scandal. Well, despite the scandal and her delirious statement suggested that Bessemer was a German spy, Lowe returned to the house she shared with Bessemer weeks after the attack. One side of her face was partially paralyzed due to the severity of the attack. And then Lowe died August 5, 1918, just two days after doctors performed surgery in an effort to uh, repair her partially paralyzed face. Well, it was just prior to her death that she told authorities she suspected it was Louis Bessemer who attacked her. And Bessemer spent nine months in jail before being released by a jury. It took only ten minutes to reach a verdict. In fact, the investigation into the, the attack and the, the uh, death of uh, Harriet Lowe was so botched the two lead investigators were demoted. Well, over the next 14 months, Jack the X-Man added a number of names to his list of victims. And Jack the X-Man was uh, hung on him by the, the press, just as Jack the Ripper got his name from the press. August 5th, 1918, the same day Harry Lowe died in Charity Hospital after a failed surgery, the mystery killer attacked 28-year-old Anna Snyder also known as Mrs. Uh, Edward Snyder. She survived, but like the others, couldn't identify her attacker. She said she woke up to find a dark figure standing over her just as he bashed her in the head repeatedly. Her scalp was torn open and she bled freely. She wasn't discovered until sometime after midnight when her husband, who had worked the late uh, shift, came home. Interestingly enough, in this particular case, Axeman changed his method somewhat. In the Snyder case, there was no door chisel, no door panel chiseled out. Instead, he, or maybe it was a she, came in through an open window. Additionally, the police never found an axe, leaving all to wonder what weapon was used for this particular attack. And as usual, nothing was stolen. Frankly, the failure of the X-Men to kill Miss Snyder was somewhat surprising as she was nine months pregnant at the time of the attack. Her head was bashed and she was bleeding horribly, but she made a full recovery and only a week after the attack gave birth to a healthy baby. Well, one question, Miss Snyder could remember nothing about the attack. She was just happy to be alive. If anything, the deviation from the X-Men modus operandi should have raised questions about whether this was a related attack, but it didn't. Police at this point had tunnel vision. Her husband told police nothing was stolen from the house besides five or six dollars that had been in his wallet. Doors and windows of the apartment appeared not to have been forced open, and authorities came to the conclusion the woman most likely attacked with a lamp that had been sitting on a nearby table. James Gleason, who police said was next convict, was arrested shortly after Snyder was found. Of course, he was later released due to a complete lack of evidence and stated he originally ran from authorities because he had not so often been arrested. Lead investigators began to publicly speculate the attack was related to the previous incidents involving the Bessemers and the Maggios. It was at this point in time that they seriously began to consider was it a serial killer, though they didn't call it that. Well, due to the delay between the first and second attacks, nobody really expected another attack almost immediately. August 10, 1918, Joseph Romano, an elderly man who earned his living as a barber, not a grocer, 
though he was Italian, was attacked while sleeping in his bed and died at Charity Hospital. In this particular case, also sleeping in the house with Joseph's two nieces, Pauline, 18, and Mary, age 13. Though both girls were awakened by sounds coming from their uncle's room, only Pauline investigated. Mary didn't see anything but screamed just the same when she heard her sister scream, which she said scared her. Pauline later testified that the two girls heard noises coming from their uncle's room, and she opened the connecting door to see a tall, dark, heavy-set man wearing a dark suit and a black slouch hat standing by her uncle's bed. She claimed she was unable to tell if the mystery man was black or white, though she thought maybe he'd been white. And she said he had vanished as if he had wings. As is the case in regard to many witness statements over the weeks after witness, she witnessed the attack on her uncle, she talked to many reporters and began to remember many things she couldn't possibly have known. Additionally, some of the early statements she reported were decidedly odd. For example, she said when she opened the door, she saw the man standing over her uncle. She screamed, and the mystery man seemed to literally vanish. Then her uncle, who staggered out of bed, stumbled into the parlor and supposedly said, I've been hit. I don't know who did it. Called the charity hospital. And then Joseph Romano was said to have walked to the ambulance. But he later died at the hospital. According to the police, this attack had all the signs expected from an Axeman attack. There's a panel chiseled out of the rear door, and there's a bloody axe found in the backyard of the Romano home. Once again, though there was money in Romano's bedroom, nothing was taken. Of course, even though the police now had at least two bloody axes as evidence, nobody even thought about the possibility of taking fingerprints. Such things just weren't done then. And then, too, since there was no central file of fingerprints against which to check the ones that might have been taken from the axes, what good would they have been? With the fourth attack also brought a wave of hysteria that literally swept the immigrant neighborhood. Men began to arm themselves to protect their families and stayed on guard at night. Strangers are viewed with great suspicion, of course. Nobody could be sure that the axe man was really a stranger or maybe somebody from the neighborhood who literally lost his or her mind. Well, the news of the Romano attack also had to result. It brought out a number of previously unreported incidents that may or may not have been related. As with any crime of this magnitude, everybody wanted to both distance themselves from the mayhem at the same time, get their 15 minutes of fame by helping solve it. Al Duran, another grocer, reported finding an axe and a chisel outside his back door on the morning of August 11th. Another grocer, Joseph LeBouf, who lived only a block from the Romano's home, reported finding somebody chiseled a panel out of his rear door on July 28th. He also reported finding an axe in the backyard. It seemed by this time everybody had a story about Jack the Axe Man. Between the fourth and fifth attack, some seven months lapsed, causing the citizens of New Orleans to breathe a sigh of relief. Smart Money said the killer had run his course in the area and been arrested for some other crime, maybe killed, and it was never reported. Whatever may have been the reason for the law and the attacks, it was thought by some and hoped by many the attacks were over. But on March 10, 1919, the mysterious Axe Man entered the home of the Court of Miglias and attacked Father Charles, Mother Rosie, and her daughter Mary. Charles and Rose survived, but Mary died. Midst the mourning her dead child, Rosie, according to Miguel, accused numerous people of being the killer before she finally accused two neighbors, Orlando Giordano and his son Frank, of being the ones who broke into her bedroom and attacked her husband, herself, and her child. And even though her husband testified that the 
Two accused neighbors were not the killer. The jury took this unsupported word of the grieving mother and sentenced both, one to prison and one and the son to death. And then her husband denied at the trial that Giordano's that attacked him, and that Rosa Comiglio admitted under questioning her memory was affected. The unsupported word of a mother who'd lost her child swayed the jury. And let's face it, everybody hoped it was Giordano, so this nightmare would end. It seemed that Orlando Giordano and his son Frank had been the first to respond to her screams and came to her rescue. Her thanks for their help was to accuse them of being the killers of her daughter. And it also came out later she bore a business-related grudge against the two, and in her state of mind after her injuries and the murder of her child, she was an easy one for the police to convince to testify against anybody. They didn't seem to care who it might be in order to bring this matter to a halt. In some quarters... Some thought if uh, somebody could be convicted, maybe the real killer would just go away. Eventually, after languishing in jail and after Rosie Cordemiglio admitted in court she'd lied about the, because she hated Giordano's, both of the Giordano's were eventually absolved of the crime, even though their lives had been ruined by the accusations. August 10, 1919, Steve Boca, New Orleans grocer, was attacked but survived. First, anybody knew about its attack when Boca staggered from his home to the nearby room of Frank Janusa. Boca's skull was split open. He was bleeding heavily. Janusa immediately called for help, and Boca was transferred to a charity hospital. And though he recovered from his wounds, he, couldn't have thought, he could not tell the investigators anything about the attacker. He could only remember waking up to see a dark figure leaning over him and the axe coming toward his head. Even though the crime scene exhibited all the signs that it was an Axeman attack, the police demonstrated some frustration and lack of due care regarding who they accused. They immediately accused uh, Janusa for the attempted murder of Boca. When Boca vehemently defended his friends, the police were forced to dismiss the charges. On the evening of September 2nd, a New Orleans druggist by the name of William Carson was sitting up in his bed reading. Heard a sound in his back door and gun in hand answered the door calling out to whoever it was to make himself known. When nobody responded, he fired through the door, aiming for somebody who had to be standing in order to reach the back door. Well, since the whole neighborhood was on edge as a result of the murders, the sound of the gunshot brought the police quickly, and well, nobody was found in the backyard of Carlson's home, and no sign that Carlson hit anybody uh, with his wild shot could be determined. Chosen marks were found on one of the panels of the back door. Many people believe it was on his quick shot that saved him from being another victim of the, this dreaded killer. Well, suddenly there was hope maybe Carlson had actually hit the mysterious axe man. Maybe he was wounded. Maybe he'd gone off by himself to die. Unfortunately, it was a false hope. September 3rd, 1919, 19-year-old Sarah L uh, Lundman was attacked but survived lived alone and likely had bled to death from her wounds, had not some neighbors. When she fell down to her bell, broke into her house and found her unconscious in her bed. Bloody axe was found on the ground beneath an open window. Young woman was rushed to the hospital and resulted in quick treatment. She survived. Determined by the doctor, she had a concussion from being hit in the head with the axe. And though she fully recovered, she never regained her memory of the incident. Like all the other victims who'd survived attacks by the mystery man, she'd remember nothing about her attacker. Finally, on October 27, 1919, grocer Mike Pepitone was attacked and killed in his bed. Mrs. Pepitone claimed she awoke to hear struggle, sounds of a struggle coming from her husband's bedroom. Apparently, the two slept in separate bedrooms. She said she entered the adjoining room where her husband slept in time to see a man disappear through another door that led from her husband's bedroom. 
She screamed loudly and woke up her six young children and also began to scream. Neighbors quickly summoned the police who found a panel chiseled from the door and a bloody axe lying on the uh, back porch. Mike Pepperton was dead. While his wife had seen the man running from the room, she wasn't able to give anybody anything more than a general description. There had been some speculation about the identity of the axe man, but there was never any proof as to his real identity. And as I've said earlier, it's interesting to note that even in the midst of a series of unsolved murders, one victim used this situation to try and get revenge on two completely innocent neighbors due to a dislike. And rather than thoroughly investigate the facts, the police took her word for the identity of the killers, and both were sentenced to prison before it was discovered she had lied. It seemed that with the murder of Mike Pepitone, Jack the X-Man ended his time in New Orleans. But there was an interesting postscript. December 20th, 1920, a former New Orleans resident by the name of Joseph Mumphrey was strolling down a Los Angeles street. Heavily veiled woman dressed in black stepped out of a doorway and emptied a revolver into Mumphrey. Then the killer stood over Mumphrey's dead body, making no attempt to escape. When arrested, the woman first said her name was Esther Albano, and she did not say why she had murdered Mumphrey. But under questioning, she admitted her name was Ms. Mike Pepitone, and she claimed she had seen Joseph Mumphrey run from her husband's room. She claimed he was Jack the X-Man. Later investigations show while Mumphrey had spent much time in New Orleans, he'd caught a record. He'd been out of jail on the date of each of the uh, X-Man murders. Well, as you might guess, police in New Orleans were jubilant, claiming the X-Man was dead once and for all. But a lot of evidence of um, residents just weren't sure. There's no proof Mumphrey killed anybody, and only Ms. Mike Pepitone's word that he killed her husband. Frankly, if there had been no evidence that uh, Mumphrey might not be the killer, then whether correct or not, as the police did, uh, we, we could put close to this case. But in spite of rumors to the contrary, the killings didn't stop though the New Orleans police did quit investigating. Alexandria, Louisiana, a small town in Rapides Parish, Louisiana, 200 miles northwest of New Orleans. It's located almost in the center of the state. December of the year 1920, a very bloody murder took place in Alexandria. About 1 o'clock in the morning on a cold December morning, uh, Rosa Spiro abruptly woke, alarmed by a presence in her bedroom. She saw this figure attack her husband and turned its bloody weapon on her. And she clearly saw the axe being swung at her head. It connected, and she knew nothing else. Woke about three hours later to find her husband dead and her 20-month-old daughter unconscious and bleeding. Her five boys were asleep unharmed in the next room. Holding her bleeding infant in her arms, she ran from the house screaming for help. When police arrived, it was discovered Joseph Sparrow had bled to death. Well, the similarities between this attack and the New Orleans X-Man killings were startling, though it would uh, seem not really appreciated by the authorities. Joseph and Rosa Spiro were Italian proprietors of a grocery store, as were most of the victims in New Orleans. Killer had come into the home through an open window, but he was carrying an axe taken from the backyard and a butcher knife taken from the grocery. Also left behind a railroad coupling pen, showing at least a minimum connection with the railroad that ran through the town. Well... There were a number of other uh, killings in other locations which appeared to point to the fact that the X-Man did move around. We're going to talk about, a little bit more about the X-Man in the Mars show, and then we'll go on to uh, some more.
unfinished business. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.